Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. It is officially part three. Hooray. We did it. We did it. Woo! 22 weeks in, and we finished the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Hopefully you have a little more gray hair now, maybe. Uh, Well, hey, my name is Trey, and I get to be the pastor here, and uh, I'm very excited for part three, as you can tell. We've been going through Matthew for a while. We're going to continue to go through Matthew for a while. And uh, so if you you have your Bibles, your phones, uh, you can go ahead and pull those out. We're going to be in Matthew 8. Now, uh, before we kind of jump into our passage, if you could tell, it was actually a lot. It was 17 verses, which is quite a big chunk. Um, but what we're going to get to see and what's, what's really transitioning here is if you look on the screen here, you know, there's seven parts of Matthew that we've basically broken up into. The first one is his birth. The last one is all the good stuff, right? Easter, Good Friday, Holy Week. Uh, and then these five in the middle are basically Matthew has woven a lot of Mark. They wrote kind of similar pieces together. Uh, in these five sections that have these five chunks of teachings, and then with, like they call it, deeds, like actions that kind of show the teaching. Well, we just finished the Sermon on the Mount Part 2, and Jesus gives us his longest discourse, his longest teaching, his longest content on what we call the kingdom, which is uh, a fancy word for just being a part of Jesus' um, troop. <laughs> his, uh, to be in his kingdom is to choose his over ours. And uh, so now we're in this third part, and what has happened is everything that we've learned, which is pretty intellectual, uh, he gives us these five through seven chapters, five through seven, these chapters of like, here's what the kingdom looks like. Now we're getting to actually see it real in front of us. And so this is kind of like, um, this is like if you had a professor who was like really smart and used the whiteboard a bunch and taught you all these problems, and you're like, when am I ever going to have to use this? And then you get to somehow do like an off-site thing with whatever he was teaching, and you get to see it come alive. And you're like, oh, that's what calculus is for. Wow, I never knew that. I still don't actually know what calculus is for, but maybe you've had that moment where you realized it all clicked. But I don't know why you ever have to use an antiderivative for anything. But anyways, um, but it's like that. He's taught us all this stuff, and it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, it's, it's kind of this invitation into the kingdom. And in fact, the, the two verses before this chapter, after he's done, this is what it says. It says in verse 28 of chapter 7, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed by his teaching because he had taught like one who had authority, not like the experts in the law, which were the Jewish people, leaders at the time. And so the key here is that he taught with authority, that there's a seriousness, there's an urgency. And when we read chapters five through seven, if you've missed it or you just, this is your first week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of those. There is this beautiful kingdom that he's developing that we're able to be a part of, but it looks completely different. Uh, than what they had known, the world they had been in. And when Matthew's writing this whole letter, this gospel that we're reading, he's writing it to Jewish people that are listening. Um, so a good way to think of that is like maybe, maybe you grew up in church, you know, or you're familiar with the church and you have all these different ideas. Matthew's kind of writing to those type of people. He's saying, here's the truth. You kind of know some stuff. Let me put all the pieces together. And so Matthew, as you remember, maybe in the beginning, if you were here at the beginning of the series, he quotes more of the Old Testament, like he uses that more than... Uh, the other Gospels, because he's, he's so heavily inundated in showing you what they had known coming to a reality. And so that's why we use the glasses as kind of a logo, because it's almost like you're seeing a new reality, because you can hear all these things, and I don't know about you, but maybe you've been around someone who has a lot of, they talk a lot of smack, but you're like, look, until you show me, your words mean nothing, you know? I could tell you I could dunk a basketball, and you might believe me, but until you see me do it, 
it's not near as cool. And so Jesus has been like, I can dunk a basketball. And they were like, oh, yeah. And then he goes out, and he's about to, like, he's about to jam. So um, this photo, if you notice, we kind of rebranded for part three. This photo is actually um, a place that is one of my favorites. Um, I took this, I don't know, probably five, six years ago. But uh, show them the first picture, Max. When you look at it, it looks just like this is the outside of it. It's just this giant kind of like cave. It's called Antelope Canyon. It's in Arizona. That's where I was a youth pastor before I came here. And, um, and you go down in this little crack. And from the outside, this is like, this is what I would say. This is like the people seeing, listening to Jesus' teaching. And they're trying to have this framework for it. And they're like seeing it like this. And then they go down into this, this kind of crack cave canyon. And you can go to the next photo or two. Um, and, and you can see these beautiful, the lighting's not super great in here for it, but these beautiful like red rocks. They're actually formed, uh, the, the, the technical, it's Navajo sandstone that has iron oxides deposit, deposited in it. You can go to another one. Uh, and so it's this beautiful rock. And what's so cool about it is uh, it's, it's owned by, it's on the Indian reservation, so the Indians give you tours, which is really cool, the Native Americans, and, um, and they take you through this, and you can take all these really cool photos. Now, it's kind of overwhelming because the, the light that's coming through and all the colors and everything, you almost like can't take a bad photo. <laughs> like you could take a photo of anything and it just looks beautiful. It looks perfect. You can maybe keep going. Uh, a few more. So this one is uh, one that I took. And this is, I don't know if you know this, but this is sideways. So you actually are, you take your camera and you turn it on against a wall. And the guide is showing you that because when you walk in, you're like, oh, this is cool. And then he's like, yeah, tilt your head like this. And you're like, whoa, that is amazing. And in some ways, this is what Jesus is doing. He's like, hey, the things you're kind of starting to understand, it's going to become a reality when you look at it in the right direction, when you start to shift your eyes where you need to look. We can get a few more. Uh, this is our, that's our main title slide. You can keep going. I think we have, this is my buddy, this is perspective. This is my buddy David. This is how tall you can see the kind of the caverns is. Even the soil is like red. It was really crazy. Keep going. These next two are actually like fam world famous photos. Like I took them, but they tell you like this photo you're taking is like this world famous photo. Um, this one I forget, it has a name, but it's like a sunset. That's the wave. Uh, it's just beautiful, beautiful rocks. Now, fun fact, the next, uh, the next one is this photo right here. Uh, it, it's a little bit controversial, but it sold for $6.5 million. It's the most expensive documented photo in the world as of right now. And it's called the Phantom. And uh, he, he has one in color as well that's only, only sold for $4 million, but apparently the black and white is just beautiful. But this is light peering through the canyon. Uh, and it, it is the, they, they argue it's the most documented photo like photography area in the, in the world. Um, so anyways, if you haven't been to Arizona, you can put that on your list. It is beautiful. But uh, I show you this, and we kind of bring this into part three, because like I said, Jesus is making the kingdom a reality in people's lives. And it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's maybe not going to be what we thought. It might even be a little bit different. But at the end of the day, the gospel of Matthew is all about putting Jesus up on this pedestal and just doing like a slow 360, right? We just get to see all these different pieces of Jesus and what he's about and what he does and who he is. And authority is about to be his priority in these next few chapters as he starts to show, not only can I tell you I can dunk, but I will dunk and you'll see it. Um, and so I, I kind of, I want to pose this before we get into it. There is, um, there is this, this kingdom that, that he talks about, but I think sometimes for us, we have to figure out, like, what is the point of this? What is the end goal? What is Jesus doing here, right? Like, what is he bringing about? And I read this earlier. I'm going to read it again. I read this during Selah time. This is the kingdom that he's talking about. This is the end. This is in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. 
this is the end, this is the hope that we have, is that there's a new heaven and new earth, and for the first heaven and earth, it ceased to exist, like in our song. I love that. It said it ceased to exist. Uh, bad things ceased to exist in, in the song. Um, and I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, no mourning, crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. And the one on the thr- seated on the throne says, look, I am making all things new. Now, this is important. We can't forget this. And if you've maybe grown up in the church, or maybe you're like kind of a little bit, you and, you and church have a little bit of a hard relationship right now. This is really important to remember because we so often lose sight of it. It's like you start running a marathon and you're running and you're like in a few miles and you're like, wait, what am I here for? And you're like, that's not how that works. Like you're running a marathon and you're pacing yourself to be able to complete it at a time you want to receive a prize and all that. And sometimes I feel like Christians are just running and they're like, wait, why am I here? Like, why did I wear this costume? This is a terrible idea. It's 26 miles. And uh, if you've ever run a marathon, some people do that. I actually ran one with a guy who ran barefoot. So I feel like uh, I was like, you are crazy, and it made me really not feel like, I thought I was so cool, and then I re- saw that guy run barefoot, and anyways, that was totally random, but regardless, you have to know the end in mind before, like, as you're doing it, and as Christians, we so often forget that Jesus is not content just making the world a little bit better of a place, <laughs> okay? He cares about much more than that. It's not just that, but he's making all things new, that, that he is restoring what God had created in the beginning, pages one and, one and two of your Bible, to be completely new, all things new. And this is what he's going to start doing. And so in verse one, we're going to get um, these, these few healings. We're going to talk about three, or three miracles as we call them. Verse one, it says, after he came down from the mountain, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him, and a leper approached and bowed low before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, see that you do not speak to anyone, but go show yourself to a priest and bring the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So here, what what do we have going on here? Jesus releases the kingdom intellectually. He says, I'm going to show you how I can dunk. He goes down and he heals one of the most culturally dirty uh, castaway people, a leper. Now, uh, leprosy is, it feels a little bit foreign, a little bit archaic to us. We don't really talk about leprosy. I don't know if you know anyone that has leprosy, but it's, at that time, um, there was different things that would be regarded, skin issues as leprosy, but there also was a Greek condition they believed to be considered, like, legit leprosy. Um, Regardless if it was true leprosy or some sort of skin condition, they were social outcasts. They were culturally unacceptable. They were considered a health hazard, and they were ceremonially unclean. So you couldn't be in a temple. You really couldn't have a relationship with God, which meant you're probably not going to be on the good side of God. You couldn't really, if you were part of a family, you most likely couldn't see your family, or if you could, it would be from a distance, and you were probably not going to live very long. Um, really, any, I mean, you can, you can name it. It's just not cool. And um, I, I, can't, I can't give you, like, what this would feel like. You kind of have to really try to, like, conjure up that reality for someone or for yourself. Uh, the closest thing that I've ever experienced is I did a uh, missions project in, Baha- in the Bahamas, and uh, most people don't go there for missions. They go there for vacation. But um, off of the, the dredged island for, uh, for commerce and tourism, the, the actual island in the south, uh, it is full of British-speaking 
um, black people. It's actually really cool. It's, it's like a native area, and they speak, they speak like English with a British accent, which is kind of fun. And anyways, we, we got to do some work there, and uh, they had this camp that was called the All Saints Camp. And essentially what it was, I kid you not, was a, like, it felt like a leper community. It was people who were diagnosed with HIV or AIDS, and you went up on this, like, hilltop on the south side of the, the main island, and they would, like, live in these shacks, and they were all on this street, and they, like, had to live there. And it was basically, like, the, the saddest thing, and we, we, part of it was we'd go and visit them and, like, and just talk, and that was, like, one of the several things that we did. But it was incredibly powerful, good and bad. I mean, being there and, and, and seeing people who live in basically the size of, like, a, like a shed, like, in your backyard, and they're just kind of stuck there until they die, and, um, and people can visit them and things like that, but I can remember even someone wanted to hug someone, and they were, like, not sure if they could hug them because they were worried about, you know, transmissions and all that stuff, and that is as close as I can come to the reality of what it would feel like to not be in human contact, to be isolated, and, and, and to, to, to realize that as your, your, your foreseeable norm. That's the thing. Leprosy in the Bible, as far as we can tell, was never healed. It was sometimes considered cleansed, um, but it was not something that was ever removed. Like people, you rarely heard about it being um, gone. Like you just, you just healed from leprosy. In fact, the stakes of this man, they, they, you just consider it terminally outcast. You're just like forever d- distanced from people and from God. And, and so this guy comes up to Jesus, kneels before him, calls him Lord. Here we can tell this guy really believes in what Jesus is capable of doing, that he knows his authority stretches beyond his words. And, and, he, and he asks basically if he would heal him. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus touches the man, which is just an absolute no-no. You don't touch lepers because you can, get, can, you can be contagious. You're immediately considered culture unclean. You have to go through a process to be able to go back in the temple and all this type of stuff, Jesus just goes and he puts his hand on him and he just goes right through his sickness, right through his disease, right through his shame, right through his pain, right through his loneliness. And that is Jesus' authority piercing the heart of humanity. And it's funny because, you know, you think about, like, you give this great speech, all these people are following you, you got a bunch of fans, and, like, you're trying to figure out, how do I capitalize on this momentum? Well, he goes down the hill and he heals a guy who no one would think of. I mean, it's, it's astonishing when you think about like what I would do if I was Jesus would not be this answer. And this is immediately what he does. He goes out, seeks this guy, and puts his hand on him and heals him. And, and the, the reaction to this is a little bit weird. Like if you're reading, you're probably like, it's weird. Jesus said to go not, not to tell anyone, to go show yourself to a priest, to bring this offering that Moses commanded. It's, it can be a little bit confusing. What he's doing here, though, is Jesus is once again not concerned with popularity if he was concerned with popularity, he would have done things a lot differently. And it's funny because he's still popular today. So obviously, it, if we're judging that on this, he still is popular. But he doesn't care about popularity to the point where it affects his identity. And so he tells this guy to not tell anyone, but he tells him to still perform the cultural understanding, the Jewish law, that would make himself cleansed of his leprosy. So even though he healed him of his leprosy, it's all gone. He's restored. He still has him go through the, the hoops, if you will, of, of the, the Jewish culture at that time. Now, that's really unique because he could have just been like, hey, you're clean. Obviously, everyone can tell. Go live your life. But we forget that Jew, Jesus is a Jew. Like, he follows the rules. People, people the joke about, like, you know, I really love Jesus. I can't stand his church. I don't like going to church. I'm like, Jesus went to church on every Sabbath. Like, he went to the synagogue. He was there. He was a dedicated church person. 
at the time, and he still is now abiding by the law that his father had put into place. And so he says, go do the appropriate things to be cleansed and to honor that law. We forget the, we, we just, our perspective misses this about Jesus. We think he'd show up today and just break all the rules. And he, he is definitely creating his own kingdom, but it, it's not going to be in contrary to his father's, um, his father's rules. And, and so he has him go do that. And, and so we, we see here the first person he draws himself to is this guy who just basically is so far off, and, and he shows his, his kingdom is real even to this, to this person. So now we go to the next person. So this guy was an outcast, super far off, unhealthy, culturally unclean. The next person, in a Jew's mind, may be on par with being as worse, uh, or as bad, I guess. Verse 5 says, when he entered Capernaum, which is where so he was probably living there, staying there, um, did a lot of work there, but his Sermon on the Mount was just outside of that in the hills. So he's coming back into the town. A centurion, which would be a Roman, Roman like leader, guard, uh, came to him and asking for help. He said, Lord, my servant's lying at home paralyzed in terrible anguish. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my home. Instead, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those who followed him, I tell you the truth, I have not found such faith in anyone in Israel. I tell you, many will come from the east, the west, to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, just as you believed, and it will be done for you. And the servant was healed. Now, this was another unique person we have here. So not only is, is uh, this centurion have a sick servant, he's also, they're both Gentiles, which Gentiles are not Jewish. You have Jews, and then you have everyone else, Gentiles. And the Jews were given God's favoritism, right? The law, the Old Testament, they were the ones, they were God's chosen nation. And, and so Jews looked down upon Gentiles, Gentiles sometimes wanted to try to infiltrate into the Jewish community, but most of the times they kept their own. They had their own gods, own religions, kind of own lifestyle. Um, but obviously we know that Rome had taken over tons of places, and they were holding this area under their own providence. And so the centurion, and if it, it's funny, Matthew writes this. I can imagine them, them vocally giving this to Jews, like listening to the Gospel of Matthew, and being like, oh, you got to be kidding me. First a leper, now a Gentile. Are you kidding me? Like, I bet they're so mad. They're like, why have you not healed a Jewish person yet? Or like, why have you not, like, like you know what I mean? Like, it's not the people we think he's going to love on. It's the exact opposite. And he ta- he, this, Roman, this Roman centurion, clearly, it's a little bit confusing here in the verbiage, but basically what, what's happening in verse, um, verse 6 and verse 7 is the way that Jesus is writing it in the Greek, it's hard to understand, but basically Jesus is saying, I will come and heal him. He's kind of asking almost a little bit like a question, like, um, like I, I will go and heal him, and the centurion's basically like, no. His response is essentially like, I'm not worthy of that. Basically, I believe in what you can do without having to be under my roof. So it's not this disrespect. Sometimes we read it and we're like, that's weird. It seems like the centurion is like, don't be near me. I'm embarrassed by you. But it's actually much different. He, he knows what he's capable of doing without even having to be there, just with a word. And that, it would be astonishing faith from this centurion. In fact, when you read the, uh, uh, I believe it's either Luke or Mark's account of this story, they kind of make the centurion sound good. They had like a great, a great well-known Roman soldier in Capernaum. Like they make him seem like good 
It's because they want you to kind of know, like, oh, this man knew, knew, was good, and he deserves this. And, and the, the baseline of this story, and what Matthew's trying to show us here, is that there is no Jew and Gentile in the kingdom of heaven. That, that Jesus is here for all, came to save all, and in this moment, his authority extends not only past cultural outcasts and the unclean and unhealthy or the sick, but also the people who we don't like, the people who take advantage of us, the people who we thought had no chance to be a part of God's kingdom. Jesus runs uh, to that man and to this centurion, and, and it's so cool because this healing is, he says, this centurion, go just as you believed and it will be done for you. That's an act of faith in itself. He had to leave, assuming and hoping that his servant was healed. And it says the servant that was healed at that very hour. Jesus doesn't even have to be in the room to heal someone. It's remarkable. Which shows you the power of prayer is real. You know, obviously we want to like pray for people and lay hands on people, but even praying at a distance is, is powerful that if we trust and we believe in that, it's a cool way to see that Jesus is doing that here. And then the last one, which is, which is one we kind of miss, um, it's just a short little one in verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying down sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. And this one's kind of unique. I don't know. Sometimes we like, it doesn't seem as dramatic, right? You're like, you know, leper, Roman centurion in the middle of town, trust Jesus, and then you're like, oh, like Peter's, Peter's uh, mother-in-law, right? Yeah, mother-in-law. You're like, I don't know, it just seems kind of bland. But what Matthew's doing here, and I forgot to put a photo up, but is he's, he's showing us there's three like little vignettes of Jesus' authority. So we have the leper, we have the centurion, and we have this uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And then what's going to happen is after this, which will be next week, he's going to call people to follow him, and then he's going to have three more three more displays of authority, and then he's going to say, follow me again, and then he's going to have three more. And so Matthew is going to have this like kind of giant chunk of nine miracles that he will do. And out of the nine, there's actually technically ten. He lumps two into one, but they're almost all healings and exorcisms, and they're, they are in parallel with Mark and Luke, the two other gospels. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because Matthew's kind of showing you this formula. It's like he's drawing you in like, oh, it's, you think it's just for lepers? Just kidding. It's also for any Gentile. Oh, you think it's just for them? It's also for a woman, and it's also in mundane ways. Like, it's possible she could have been dying, but from what we read in the way it appears, it just seems like she was just sick, like just having a fever, having a, having a flu or something, um, and could, have, could be dying from it, but in this, we just, we don't get that. She's just lying down sick with a fever, and Jesus comes up, and he touches her hand and heals her. And I think in that, there's lots of different, like, pathways you can go with this little story. And I don't want to draw all of them out, because a lot of them, I think, are just a little bit of, like, an opinion. But at the end of the day, Jesus is here for, yet again, another person, a woman, which is culturally even more scandalous than a man, because uh, women at this time were not near. We so often lose sight of it. It's like you start running a marathon, and you're running, and you're, like, in a few miles, and you're like, wait, what am I here for? And you're like, that's not how that works. Like, you're running a marathon, and you're pacing yourself to be able to complete it at a time you want to receive a prize and all that. And sometimes I feel like Christians are just running, and they're like, wait, why am I here? Like, why did I wear this costume? This is a terrible idea. It's 26 miles. And uh, if you've ever run a marathon, some people do that. I actually ran one with a guy who ran barefoot. So I feel like, uh, I was like, you are crazy. And it made me really not feel like, I thought I was so cool. And then I saw that guy run barefoot, and Anyways, that was totally random, but 
Regardless, you have to know the end in mind before, like, as you're doing it. And as Christians, we so often forget that Jesus is not content just making the world a little bit better of a place. <laughs> okay? He cares about much more than that. It's not just that, but he's making all things new, that, that he is restoring what God had created in the beginning, pages one and, one and two of your Bible, to be completely new, all things new. And this is what he's going to start doing. And so in verse one, we're going to get um, these, these few healings. We're going to talk about three, or three miracles as we call them. Verse one, it says, after he came down from the mountain, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him, and a leper approached and bowed low before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, see that you do not speak to anyone, but go show yourself to a priest and bring the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So here, what, what do we have going on here? Jesus releases the kingdom intellectually. He says, I'm going to show you how I can dunk. He goes down and he heals one of the most culturally dirty uh, castaway people, a leper. Now, uh, leprosy is, it feels a little bit foreign, a little bit archaic to us. We don't really talk about leprosy. I don't know if you know anyone that has leprosy, but it's, at that time, um, there was different things that would be regarded, skin issues as leprosy, but there also was a Greek condition they believed to be considered, like, legit leprosy. Um, regardless if it was true leprosy or some sort of skin condition, they were social outcasts. They were culturally unacceptable. They were considered a health hazard, and they were ceremonially unclean. So you couldn't be in a temple. You really couldn't have a relationship with God, which meant you're probably not going to be on the good side of God. You couldn't really, if you were part of a family, you most likely couldn't see your family, or if you could, it would be from a distance, and you were probably not going to live very long. Um, really, any, I mean, you can, you can name it. It's just not cool. And um, I, I, can't, I can't give you, like, what this would feel like. You kind of have to really try to, like, conjure up that reality for someone or for yourself. Uh, the closest thing that I've ever experienced is I did a uh, missions project in, bah- in the Bahamas, and uh, most people don't go there for missions. They go there for vacation. But um, off of the, the dredged island for, uh, for commerce and tourism, the, the actual island in the south, uh, it is full of British-speaking um, black people. It's actually really cool. It's, it's like a native area, and they speak, they speak like English with a British accent, which is kind of fun. And anyways, we, we got to do some work there, and uh, they had this camp that was called the All Saints Camp, and essentially what it was, I kid you not, was a, like, it felt like a leper community. It was people who were diagnosed with HIV or AIDS, and you went up on this, like, hilltop on the south side of the, the main island, and they would, like, live in these shacks, and they were all on this street, and they, like, had to live there. And it was basically, like, the, the saddest thing, and we, we, part of it was we'd go and visit them and, like, and just talk, and that was like one of the several things that we did, but it was incredibly powerful, good and bad. I mean, being there and, and, and seeing people who live in basically the size of like a, like a shed, like in your backyard, and they're just kind of stuck there until they die, and, um, and people can visit them and things like that, but I can remember even someone wanted to hug someone, and they were like not sure if they could hug them because... They were worried about, you know, transmissions and all that stuff. And that is as close as I can come to the reality of what it would feel like to not be in human contact, to be isolated, and, and, and to, to, to realize that as your, your, your foreseeable norm. That's the thing. Leprosy in the Bible, as far as we can tell, was never healed. It was sometimes considered cleansed, um, but it was not something that was ever removed. Like, people, you rarely heard about it being um, gone, like you just, you just healed from leprosy. In fact, 
the stakes of this man, they, they, you just consider it terminally outcast. You're just like forever di- distanced from people and from God. And, and so this guy comes up to Jesus, kneels before him, calls him Lord. Here we can tell this guy really believes in what Jesus is capable of doing, that he knows his authority stretches beyond his words. And, and, he, and he asks basically if he would heal him. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus touches the man, which is just an absolute no-no. You don't touch lepers because you can, get, can, you can be contagious. You're immediately considered culture unclean. You have to go through a process to be able to go back in the temple and all this type of stuff. Jesus just goes and he puts his hand on him and he just goes right through his sickness, right through his disease, right through his shame, right through his pain, right through his loneliness. And that is Jesus' authority piercing the heart of human, humanity. And it's funny because, you know, you think about, like, you give this great speech, all these people are following you, you got a bunch of fans, and, like, you're trying to figure out, how do I capitalize on this momentum? Well, he goes down the hill, and he heals a guy who no one would think of. I mean, it, it's, it's astonishing when you think about, like, what I would do if I was Jesus would not be this answer. And this is immediately what he does. He goes out, seeks this guy, and puts his hand on him, and heals him. And, and the, the reaction to this is a little bit weird. Like, if you're reading, you're probably like, it's weird. Jesus said to go not, not to tell anyone, to go show yourself to a priest, to bring this offering that Moses commanded. It's, it can be a little bit confusing. What he's doing here, though, is Jesus is once again not concerned with popularity. If he was concerned with popularity, he would have done things a lot differently. And it's funny because he's still popular today. So obviously, it, if we're judging that on this, he still is popular. But he doesn't care about popularity to the point where it affects his identity. And so he tells this guy to not tell anyone, but he tells him to still perform the cultural understanding, the Jewish law, that would make himself cleansed of his leprosy. So even though he healed him of his leprosy, it's all gone, he's restored, he still has him go through the, the hoops, if you will, of, of the, the Jewish culture at that time. Now that's really unique, because he could have just been like, hey, you're clean, obviously everyone can tell, go live your life. But we forget that Jew, Jesus is a Jew, like he follows the rules. People, people the joke about, like, you know, I really love Jesus. I can't stand his church. I don't like going to church. I'm like, Jesus went to church on every Sabbath. Like, he went to the synagogue. He was there. He was a dedicated church person at the time, and he still is now abiding by the law that his father had put into place. And so he says, go do the appropriate things to be cleansed and to honor that law. We forget the, we, we just, our perspective misses this about Jesus we think he'd show up today and just break all the rules. And he, he is definitely creating his own kingdom, but it, it's not going to be in contrary to his father's, um, his father's rules. And, and so he has him go do that. And, and so we, we see here the first person he draws himself to is this guy who just basically is so far off, and, and he shows his, his kingdom is real even to this, to this person. So now we go to the next person. So this guy was an outcast, super far off, unhealthy, culture unclean. The next person, in a Jew's mind, may be on par with being as worse, uh, or as bad, I guess. Verse 5 says, when he entered Capernaum, which is where, so he was probably living there, staying there, um, did a lot of work there, but his Sermon on the Mount was just outside of that in the hills, so he's coming back into the town. A centurion, which would be a Roman, Roman like, leader, guard, uh, came to him and asking for help. He said, Lord, my servant's lying at home paralyzed in terrible anguish. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my home. Instead, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed 
And he said to those who followed him, I tell you the truth, I have not found such faith in anyone in Israel. I tell you, many will come from the east, the west, to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go just as you believed and it will be done for you. And the servant was healed. Now this was another unique person we have here. So not only is is uh, this centurion have a sick servant. He's also, they're both Gentiles, which Gentiles are not Jewish. You have Jews, and then you have everyone else, Gentiles. And the Jews were given God's favoritism, right? The law, the Old Testament, they were the ones, they were God's chosen nation. And, and so Jews looked down upon Gentiles. Gentiles sometimes wanted to try to infiltrate into the Jewish community, but most of the times they kept their own. They had their own gods, own religions, kind of own lifestyle. Um, but obviously we know that Rome had taken over tons of places, and they were holding this area under their own providence. And so this centurion, and if it, it's funny, Matthew writes this. I can imagine them, them vocally giving this to Jews, like listening to the Gospel of Matthew, and being like, oh, you got to be kidding me. First a leper, now a Gentile. Are you kidding me? Like, I bet they're so mad. They're like, why have you not healed a Jewish person yet? Or like, why have you not, like, like you know what I mean? Like, it's not the people we think he's going to love on. It's the exact opposite. And he ta- he, this, Roman, this Roman centurion, clearly, it's a little bit confusing here in the verbiage, but basically what, what's happening in verse, um, verse 6 and verse 7 